Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by BlackRock Health, providing patients with world-class clinical care and comfort, enabling swifter recoveries. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. Now, my next guest this morning is the lead singer of one of the world's biggest bands, having sold more than 110 million records worldwide. Currently in the midst of a major world tour, July of next year will see Def Leppard, along with Motley Crue, take the tour to Dublin. And I'm joined now by the lead singer with Def Leppard, Joe Elliott. Joe, morning to you. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Listen, we'll chat about your tour shortly, especially bringing it here to Dublin. But you're kicking off your European leg in Sheffield, where I think it all began 45 years ago. Do you mind taking my listeners back to 1977? Had the band's origins to do truly with you missing your bus home after school? Well, yeah, when you, you know, if you use your sliding doors moments to look back over the history of any situation, I think you'll find most people have got a moment in their career or their life where they go, you know, if I had just turned left instead of right, none of this would have happened. And they are just pivotal moments. They don't mean a great deal until you look back on them. But absolutely, it was a, a lovely sunny August evening and I was working in a factory in Sheffield which is what you either did or worked down a coal mine. They were mm. pretty much your two choices in, in what was Sheffield in the mid to late 70s. And I went to the uh, the newsagents and um, I came out of the shop to see the number nine bus sailing up the hill. So I'd missed my ride home. So I walked home, but instead of walking the bus route, for some bizarre reason, I walked up a parallel street and I saw this gentleman walking down this, the street and I knew he was a guitar player a kid called Pete Willis. And I just got my first uh, electric guitar from a, a second-hand store in Sheffield. And I just happened to say to him, knowing that he played, you know, hey, do you want to get a band together for a laugh? You know, and he goes, well, kind of got one. We're looking for a singer. And I just blurted out, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and that was pretty much it, you know. A couple of days later, he got his mates. They all came around to my mom and dad's and we went up to my bedroom and they saw my pretty eclectic but massive record collection and were pretty impressed with the fact that we were actually at least musically and ideas-wise all on the same page. But I don't think I sang my first word in anger for five, maybe six weeks because we had to find somewhere to rehearse and then we had to decide what songs we were going to do and all that kind of stuff. So we actually became mates and we hung out before we even started playing together. But yeah, that's how it all started. I missed a bus and here I am. Is it true your dad loaned you money to record your first record? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he emptied his bank account. Bless him. I mean, back in those days, you know, you've got to realise Sheffield, not dis- dissimilar to Dublin, I would imagine, mm. was a pretty poor place, you know. It was all steelworks. It was still under the shadow of the end of the war. There were still... You know, I as a kid, I never understood why all the little stubby walls had these little tiny inch-long bits of steel sticking up out of them. Until so my dad said, well, that's because they cut all the steel off to make tanks and bullets and guns for the war. And it had never been replaced. The place was a bit depressing. Every factory that was open had got broken windows everywhere. I mean, the only thing missing out of Sheffield was literally was like the tumbleweed. Otherwise, it just looked like the Wild West, but built out of stone. It was a very depressing place, and it was it was a wonderful thing to be have parents that were like, okay, well, if you really think you can do this, not going to stop you, giving you that backing. And then when I said to my dad, look, you know, we got a chance to go and make a um, a three track EP, 
but um, I need some money. And he's like, how much do you want? And I said, I need about 150 quid. And I just remember him, like, didn't say a lot for a few seconds. And then went, <laughs> well, you're going to have to pay me back. And I, I, it was only years later when my mum said to me on the quiet, she said, you know, he actually drained our bank account. That's all we had. Wow. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously he got his money back and, you know, in spades really, because I looked after my parents so much once we hit kind of the, the success that we did. But um, yeah, he cleared out his bank account, lent us the money. And honestly, I'm not lying because you don't forget the very early things. But the bill to record that EP came in at £148.50. And the the reason I remember that so much is we had to record it in Hull. So we were driving home from Hull. A couple of mates came with us because we didn't have transport. They drove us there and back. Um, and we had 75p per car to get fish and chips to share around whoever was in them. <laughs> and that was the 150 quid gone, you know. Mm. Luckily, within four or five months of that EP coming out, we had like 11 or 12 A&R men come in to see us at the Retford Porter House, and then half of them followed up to the Middlesbrough Rock Gardens the following night. And then there was a bidding war, and that put us in a really good place. Is it true your first tour, I think, supporting ACDC, it could only go ahead if you brought a tutor on tour with you? Rick Allen's 16th birthday happened on the second of four nights at the Hammersmith Odeon on that tour. Okay. So he was technically, he was 15 years old. He was supposed to go to school in Scotland where there's this loophole where you could only, you only had to go one day a week. And he did that for about three weeks through the summer of 1979. And then he just got bored and just decided not to bother going. And, you know, back in those days, everything was like paper and paper clips and pens. There was no internet. So tracking people down, if they weren't actually in the house that they were supposed to be living in, was pretty difficult. Even if you were in the rock papers every week, the education authorities wouldn't really be reading the NME on a daily basis, you know. So he just went, sod it. And we were all young and stupid and teenagers. And we went, yeah, radical, man. Let's just go on the road. So he was supposed to finish his education. But let's be honest, he's had a way better education (laughs) in the real world than he ever would have got going to school once a week in Scotland. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Of course, look, Everyone knows 110 million album sales later, 14.2 million social media followers, a massive US tour, your new album, Diamond Star Halos. And I gather that's your highest charting in three decades. You're really appealing, aren't you, to a whole new generation. That's your plan, isn't it, Joe? You know, like most bands, we go through what's known as the wilderness years, you know, where you just kind of... Where are they now? But they're actually still working. They're just not in the papers every day in the cities that they're not performing in. We we were fortunate that when the popularity from a record sales point of view started to dip, the live circuit became came to the forefront as like more mm. important than record sales. And it was a lot of this was down to when musical started to stream and when it went digital. There was a whole new way of listening to music, which is why I think the live thing really started to take off because people were not doing that bedroom kind of ritual of sharing music with your mates and talking over it and playing it again and all this kind of stuff. Everybody's just listening on their own, either on game consoles or on, you know, you go Mm. jogging with a CD player strapped to your thing, and everybody was just off doing their own thing, not really sharing human contact as much as when we were kids. But then you go to a gig and everybody's banging into each other and having a great time. But it never really twigged on anybody that, well, we, sh- 
we did this at home with the records, it'd be cool as well. But new generations want to do their own thing. This is just my take on it. I really do think that. And our popularity started to go up when the live circuit became arguably more important than the record circuit. But having said that, we never gave up on the records. We've always made them. Even with the pandemic, which stopped us getting together to make an album, we just got on the phone to each other and said, well, why don't we just do it remotely? We have the technology and we've done it. We've dabbled in this before, but we've never done an album 100% where band members are literally far-flung corners of the planet. You know, I was in Dublin, Sav was in Sheffield, Vivian was on the east coast of America, and Rick and Phil were on the west coast. <laughs> yeah, through the beauty of the same way we're doing this interview, and a phenomenal engineer in Ballantyre called Ronan McHugh, he could glue it all together. And um, yes, it was our highest charting album in 30 years, it's done incredibly well. All these little things are all coming together to just put our name back into the on the front burner rather than the back burner. And and like you say, it's given us the opportunity now. All these years later, we're playing the biggest shows we've ever played. We've just come off the back of thirty six stadium shows in the states, which is bigger than anything we've ever done in the past. And we're about to do the same thing all over Europe, including Marley Park in Ireland, mm. Wembley Stadium in London. It really is. A, a blessed career that we've had and are still enjoying. It's lovely to go back to your hometown. And of course, it's a great album. And there are two tracks which feature a star I wouldn't necessarily associate you with, like Alison Krauss, but it works really well. And we're going to play the guitar quite soon. How did that come about? How did Alison end up singing on the album? Well, Alison's been a friend of ours for... 28 years almost. She's a huge Def Leppard fan, funnily enough. You may remember a long gone English rock glossy called Q Magazine. Mm. We put an album back in 1996 called Slang, and she insisted on being the interviewer for this article they were going to do on our new album. So it was jolly interviewed by Alison Krauss. <laughs> and I was thinking at the time, why? You know, and she, she's a huge fan. And all she was doing is like picking my brains. How do you guys do your harmonies? <laughs> They're very countryfied harmonies, all this kind of stuff. And Mutt Langauer, then producer, was a big country fan. So he would always be advising us, just change that little minor to a major and it'll put a twist on the harmony that's just beyond rock standard two parts. And just technical nonsense like that. And it was registering and reverberating in the in the country community, especially with younger artists like Alison. You know, over the years, we play Nashville. She'd come down and see us. Um, we were very fortunate in 2008 to do a TV show in America where we worked with Taylor Swift when she was literally still breaking. She was like maybe 17 or 18 years old. Um, and hanging around in Nashville, we'd see her for dinner. Then we got invited to the Country Rock Awards and Alison was performing and earning probably a 90th Grammy, <laughs> Country Grammy. And uh, we just hang, you know, we would just hang. And one day, another good friend of ours is Robert Plant, uh, the one singer of Led Zeppelin, but mm. now a very successful solo artist in his own right. And he just happened to mention to me one day, he says, what are you up to? And I said, we're doing a new record. He says, oh, I better not tell Alison because, you know, you're a favourite band, annoyingly. And, um, you know, but he did. And word got back. And then by total coincidence, our manager saw her manager at some conference and they got talking and said, well, you know, guys are making a new record. If she wants to jump on board, they'd love to have her. And I got word back that she did. And we had these two songs that we weren't sure which one she'd like most because they were both countryfied to a point. So we sent them both, and within an hour, she got back to me saying, I can't pick. 
I really like both of them. So I said, well, do them both then. <laughs> so she did. <laughs> and um, she turned a very good song into an absolutely stunning piece of work. Mm. Now, you famously live here in Dublin. Do you like Dublin? Well, listen, I, I was born and bred in Sheffield, lived there for 21 years. I've been in Dublin for 38, 38 years. So, yeah, I do love it. You know, we, we initially came came here in, in 1984 to work from February to August was the plan, and that would have been it. But during that first two or three weeks that we were in Ireland, we were frequenting the Pink Elephant, if you remember. Yeah, that. I sure do. Um, and, of course, you walk in and all of a sudden you're going, is that Spandau Ballet over there? Is that Frankie Goes to Hollywood over there? <laughs> and that, bands that you would say musically there's nothing in common with, but because we were Englishmen abroad, we hung out big time with these guys and just had the best time ever because, you know, you weren't on the road anymore. You were taking his clothes out of a wardrobe and on a suitcase for the first time in a year. And it was novel and fun and great, you know. And at the same time, within 10 days of being there, I remember I went to the SFX one night and our mutual promoter, Dennis Desmond, who promoted yeah. us, still does actually, and invited us down to a Simple Mind show. And we were just hanging out backstage. And this guy comes up to me and he says, I heard you were in town. If there's anything you need, anything at all, give me a shout. And gave me a piece of paper with his number on it. And it was Bono. <laughs> and that's how it went from there on in. I hung out with and still do hang out with Adam Clayton. You know, I mean, we 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 spent time together over Christmas. His young kid and my young kid were playing together, you know. Yeah. I mean, we I, I was playing, we were playing five-a-side soccer with Stockton's wing. We were getting hammered with Clanad. It was, it, and I, I think this didn't happen in Sheffield. This didn't happen in London. I like this place. And socially, it was like right up my speed. But I loved the fact that it was like, and please take this as a compliment, Sheffield on the sea. It was a capital city of a million people, maybe. Yeah. Sheffield, maybe three quarters of a million. But you had the ocean, which Sheffield is landlocked. And I like the fact that it was this cosmopolitan capital city on the water. You know, you've got Bram Stoker, you too. You've got all the poetry that came mm. through Ireland. And yet it was manageable. It wasn't like living in New York where there's 10 million people banging into you. <laughs> it was small and or smaller, but it, it, it had a vibe. And it... It stayed with me. And by August, I was like, I don't want to leave here. <laughs> and so although we did to go work other places, I kept coming back. And then eventually I became resident in late 80s. Yeah, it's a fab city. Before I let you go and mention your tour again, you did a DNA test recently. Now, obviously, Sheffield is your home place. But what did it show up? Well, it showed up something that, you know, sometimes you just get a feeling that doesn't make any sense to you. But that when I was telling you about the the 1984 period of us being in, in Ireland, mm -hmm. I remember we were living in Bootestown opposite the bird sanctuary. And I remember stepping out. I think I was going for a jog or something. And I stood there just breathing in the fumes of the traffic going past. But the fresh air and the, hearing the birds and thinking, I, be, I feel like I belong here for some <laughs> reason. I feel like, but, you know, it was more a case of I wanted to. But then... All these years later, when the technology caught up, I actually did that Ancestry.com thing and swab cheek, sent it off, and lo and behold, it came back that I'm, yes, I'm 24% English, but I'm 25% Irish. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, so I was like, you know, I mean, 46% Northern European, but I'm more Irish than English for some strange reason. And it just made me think, you know, maybe I knew that then. You know, maybe there is an internal 
network of knowledge that your brain can't quite compute at the time that goes, that feeling you've got is real, you know. Hmm. I don't know. Well, look, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. You've got a lovely, upbeat way of carrying on. It's a joy. And listen, Def Leppard and Motley Crue are taking their world tour to Marley Park here in Dublin on July the 4th. And tickets are on sale right now from Ticketmaster.ie. Before you go, we're going to hear a track from your most recent album, Joe, Diamond Star Halos. It's recorded with the same Alison Krauss. And this is Viscatar. Thanks for chatting to us, Joe. My pleasure. Real then, I found you 